right, will you please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 18 to 22. This will be our last sermon from Mark until the start of the new year because next Sunday, as I've already alluded to, uh, the season of Advent begins. And uh, friends, Advent could not have come at a better time as we find ourselves once again in a period of great uncertainty and anxiety for many. So next Sunday, we're going to begin a, a, just a brief four-week ser- sermon series aimed at showing Christ as our one abiding hope and promise during and in the midst of chaos. And there really is no better time to invite your family, your friends, and, and neighbors to church than during Advent. So let's, uh, let's use this opportunity to continue reaching out to our culture, which is in desperate, desperate need of hope. In Mark chapter 2, uh, this episode in today's text is the third of five consecutive conflicts that Mark gives us between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. The first, of course, you remember, was over claiming to be able to forgive sin in the account of the paralytic, the healing of the paralytic. The second was over Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And in our text today, they once again spar about the disciples of Jesus not fasting. So let's read... Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse number 18. Now John's disciples and the disciples, or John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new cloth from the old, and a worse tear is made. And No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Father, we ask your blessing upon this reading of your word. Lord, anoint these words that, that leave my mouth. Lord, may the meditations of my mouth, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Transform us through it for the sake and the glory of your Son, Jesus. We ask God all in His name. Amen. Uh, for almost a decade, uh, I, was a, I was a teacher <laughs> at a private Christian school in Lexington, Kentucky. And I remember one young man who was, uh, who was very open about his rejection of the Christian faith. He was a very respectful student. Uh, we were, you know, friends, if you will. Uh, 
But this young man just did not want anything to do with Christ or the church. And I remember having a conversation with him when he was a seventh grader. And I asked him, I said, why are you, why are you so opposed to Christianity? And his answer was this. And this is, I, I still remember it to this day. This is exactly what he said. Christians are too boring. All they talk about is what you can't do. You know, his answer, I think, is to a large degree, unfortunately, very true. Too many professing Christians are so concerned with their personal list of do's and don'ts that they miss the joy that comes from an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. We become so preoccupied, even you and me, we become so preoccupied with external forms of righteousness that we use them as measures of spirituality. And this was the problem with many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day as well. The Pharisees were, they, they were a, a sect of religious leaders who were what we might call the Bible-believing conservatives of their day. They were the good guys, so to speak. Now, I realize that we often, you know, we, we lay charges at the feet of the Pharisees and we crack on them all the time, but, friends, they were concerned with complete obedience to God's law. In fact, they were so concerned that they actually distorted it by adding their own man-made list of rules, and as a result, they completely missed the whole point of the law and the purpose of the law, which was to point them and us to Christ. The Pharisees were the most pious of all Jews, living in meticulous obedience to the law and to the over 600 detailed applications of it to daily life. What was called the tradition of the elders. But this pursuit of piety was misguided because it kept them from seeing Christ for who He was, the ultimate purpose and fulfillment of the law. And friends, their mistake is, I'm afraid, too often our mistake as well. We miss Christ for the sake of man-made piety. Now, piety is just really, simply put, the practical pursuit of holiness in our daily lives. So it's not a bad thing until we start believing that we are righteous because of our piety. Then it becomes the very enemy of Christ, just like the Pharisees of His day. And so our text this morning addresses this danger of misguided piety. And I want us to look at it together by way of three main headings, three main thoughts, three main ideas uh, and the first is that Jesus challenges our notions, our misguided notions of piety. Verse 18 says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And fasting, of course, is the practice of abstaining from 
food and sometimes water for an extended period of time. And in the Bible, fasting was an expression of mourning, penitence, devotion, or preparation, sort of any of those. The law in Leviticus 16.19 only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the practice of the Pharisees was to fast twice a week. Verse 18 also says that the disciples of John, now this is John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist were also fasting. And it doesn't really tell us why they were fasting. It could have been a couple of reasons. It, it may have been because he, John, by this point, was imprisoned. You remember for calling out the sin of Herod's adultery. Herod had him arrested and he was put in prison. Eventually he lost his life. They may have been mourning or fasting over that. Or it could have been just the general nature of John's ministry as one of repentance, as one of preparation for the Messiah. But this question here, about the disciples of Jesus. Why don't they fast? You know, it really is more than a question. It's really a cloaked objection. You ever done that? You ever, have you ever made an objection or complained about something by cloaking it in a question? I think that's what's happening here. And there really is almost a hint, a hint of holier than thou here. There's an attitude of holier than thou, as if to say... You know, how come you're so spiritual, but you don't tell your disciples to do what all these other spiritual people are doing? They had fallen into the classic comparison trap. They were making incorrect judgments, incorrect assumptions by comparing their lives to others it may have very well made them feel more righteous about themselves to see that they were doing something that Jesus didn't require His own disciples to do. And friends, this really holds some pretty strong application for us. Because don't we sometimes act like that too? You know, we may look at the lives of others and feel more righteous. We may feel more better, feel better about ourselves because we go to church three times a week, but they only come on Sunday morning. Or we pray out loud in church, but, but they don't. Or their kids are always in trouble but ours aren't. Or what about this one? We wear our mask all the time. And we meticulously social distance all the time, but, but they don't. If they were really spiritual, if they really loved God, they would do like I do. Friends, this kind of thinking across the spectrum comes from misguided notions and the idea that external acts of piety 
are accurate measurements of inner spirituality. They are not. We can check off all the boxes that we think a good, obedient Christian should look like. We could hit every one of them. And yet our hearts be full of spiritual rot. And friends, one of the sure marks of a deep disconnect between God's Word and our hearts is a hypercritical and judgmental spirit. Which is really what the question in verse 18 basically represents. How come you don't make your disciples fast and you, you're over there you're over there claiming to be able to forgive sin, but you don't even make your disciples fast. See, Jesus challenges all those misguided notions of piety, doesn't He? He comes into our little list of rules, our list of do's and don'ts, and just messes everything up. First, He was called eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. The Pharisees had a problem with that. And now he, he doesn't even make his disciples fast like everybody else. You see, this Jesus was a problem for the pious religious people of the first century, and he certainly is still a problem for us today because he continues to challenge all of our man-made traditions and our misguided notions of piety. He tears them up. The second thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus corrects our misunderstanding of who He is. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So he, he sets out, as he often does, to answer their question about fasting with a parable, an illustration of a wedding. Listen to the way one commentator described weddings in the culture of Jesus. Keep this in mind when you, you, know, when you read through the Gospel of John and you get to John chapter 2 when he turns the water into wine. Think, keep this... This is what a typical wedding in this Palestinian culture looked like. A wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted seven days for a virgin bride or three days for a remarried widow. Friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. There was an abundance of food and wine as well as song, dance, and fun both in the house and on the street. Even the rabbis were expected to desist from Torah instruction and join the celebration with their students. You know, I don't know about you, but that sounds like something that most Baptists would be uncomfortable at. But what does a wedding have to do with why his disciples do not fast? Jesus uses this parable to point beyond fasting, beyond piety. He uses this parable to, to point to His unique identity. He is 
the bridegroom. In their culture, no one would fast or mourn at a wedding. And as the bridegroom, the incarnational presence of Christ here on earth was cause not for mourning, but for celebration. Now was the time to rejoice, for the Son of Man, the Son of God, was here. The Old Testament uses this kind of wedding language as well. And it uses it to illustrate that God Himself was the bridegroom of His chosen people. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says this, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. A few chapters later in Isaiah 62, verse 5, the prophet says, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. So in the Old Testament, God himself is the bridegroom of his people, Israel. And if we read these Old Testament texts through the New Testament lens of Christological fulfillment, as we should, when Jesus identifies Himself as the bridegroom, that is significant. Because He is identifying Himself as one co-equal with God Himself. And so yet, here we have another claim to divinity straight from the lips of Jesus Himself. So church, don't ever let a skeptic or a false teacher tell you that Jesus did not claim to be divine. Yes, He did. And He did often. Now, you may not see that, and they may not see that right on the surface of that text. But when you connect the dots, and we so often talk about the Christological scarlet thread that runs throughout and weaves all the way through Scripture, and you start connecting the dots along that thread, and you see that the bridegroom of Israel is the bridegroom of the church. And He is divine. You see, the Pharisees didn't get why Jesus wouldn't make His disciples fast, because they didn't understand who He was. There was no need for them to fast, because the bridegroom was with them. The celebration was on. You know, we need our understanding of the identity of Jesus corrected today in the church. There are so many in the American church especially that have created a Jesus of their own liking. But He is not just another moral teacher like Gandhi. He is not a social justice warrior. He is not a political activist. He is the divine Son of God who has come to our world to save for Himself a chosen bride made up of believing sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But the presence of the bridegroom here on earth 
was not permanent. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus is trying to correct what they... He's trying to, to show them the point. And he's trying to show them himself as the bridegroom. And this text has some very peculiar language because in a wedding, friends, the bridegroom was not taken away. In a wedding, when the festivities were over, it was the wedding guest who would leave and go home, not the bridegroom. So what in the world does Jesus mean when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast? The the Greek verb for taken here indicates force. And friends, this is most certainly a veiled reference to the future violent death of Jesus. And then his disciples could fast. Then they could mourn. But not now. In, uh, in, in 1999, this is just a little personal story, illustration, whatever. In 1999, before, before Jamie and I were, in, before we were engaged, uh, she came to visit me when I lived in Wyoming. And uh, it had been several months since I had seen her. And aside from the fact that uh, altitude sickness put her in the emergency room and really messed up my original proposal plans, I was just glad to be with her again for a few days. Her mom was there, okay. We had a chaperone. (laughs) When the week was over, and I said goodbye to her and her mom at the airport, it was a sad drive all the way home from Denver to Cheyenne. I'm not going to lie to you, I shed tears. But she left Colorado that day with the promise of marriage. And friends, though Christ is separated from us now, though He has been taken from us now, He left us with a promise to return for His bride. And He will take us to a wedding party, the likes of which all of creation has never seen. We read about it this morning in our text in our unison reading, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the incarnation of Christ on earth was but a brief foretaste of that glorious wedding banquet. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Are you making yourself ready this morning? Do you understand who Jesus is? The last thing that we see in this passage, not only did Jesus does He challenge our man-made misguided notions of piety, not only does He correct our misunderstanding of His identity, but He collides with our man-made pursuit of righteousness. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of 
unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now you may read that. And we are 2,000 years removed from the culture in which these illustrations and parables make sense. But his original listeners and hearers would have understood it perfectly. If you patch an old garment with a piece of new cloth, when the new patch is washed, it will shrink, and it will tear away from the old, and both will be destroyed. Wineskins were made of goat skins. And they would stretch from the gases released during the process of fermentation of new wine, which meant new wine had to be put in unused new wineskins, or else the fermentation would stretch the old wineskins beyond their limit and they would burst. And the wine would be wasted. What's the point? This is the point. Jesus is the new cloth. Jesus is the new wine. He cannot be patched over the worn-out garments of man-made tradition. He cannot be poured into the old wineskins of man-made traditions of, of Judaism and their rules and list of do's and don'ts. You see, the gospel of the kingdom of Christ cannot be integrated into existing forms of human effort to be righteous through acts of, acts, acts of piety like fasting twice a week. You know, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, they fasted like this in order to be seen. That's why he says, when you fast, wash your face. Don't be like the hypocrites who do all these pious lists of do's and don'ts and rules out of a corrupt heart-level motive. Jesus collided with their man-made notions of piety and righteousness. He collided with their pursuit of righteousness. And friends, He still collides with it today. And there are many, many, many man-made, man-centered efforts to be righteous today. Every other religion on planet earth, and even, even some parts of Christianity, are based on the notion that we can fix ourselves through human effort. But friends, Jesus does not mix with human effort. The gospel cannot be reconciled with the woke social justice movement or Black Lives Matter. It cannot be mingled with our own notions of what it means to atone for sin. Now whether that be through a, a, a fundamentalist legalism or perhaps the, the Roman Catholic system of merit or anything that we think that we can do to be made righteous before God. 
There is no righteousness apart from faith alone in Christ alone. Can we say with the hymn writer, Edward Mote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Friends, if we think that we're doing something that will make us acceptable to God, (laughs) we can't sing that. Our hope must be built on nothing else save Jesus' blood. His righteousness. You see, He is not an accessory to be tacked on to the lives that we are already living. A patch to sort of sew on to our own efforts at achieving righteousness. And friends, so many professing believers treat Him this way. As if He just came to make our already existing lives better. He did not come to make our lives better. He came to make them altogether new. What about you this morning? Are you you a good person checking off that list? Comparing your life to someone else? Well, they do this. I don't do that. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm, I'm more righteous. God is more pleased with me. Do you measure your goodness against how bad other people are? Do you look down on others because they work out their salvation perhaps a little differently than you do? Are you more committed to your own traditions or the traditions of your church? then you are committed to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, my life doesn't look anything like it did 15 years ago. My belief system doesn't look anything like it did 15 years ago. When I talk to someone and they say, you know, I've believed the same thing for 40 years, well, my first instinct is, well, you've never opened your Bible. Because the Bible changes us. It changes how we measure righteousness. It is measured alone through Christ. It changes how we treat others. We don't look down on them and wonder, well, why, why do they do this and then I do that? The Bible will destroy misguided piety. We cannot be more committed to these things, these lists, these traditions than we are to Christ. If we are, then we may be trying to sew a new cloth onto an old garment. But friends, the old garment (laughs) is us. The old wineskins that have been used up that's us. That's who we are in this, in this image right here. We are the torn, ragged garments, used up wineskins of the pursuit of human righteousness, the pursuit of merit with God in our own works, 
It is us who need to be emptied of our own man-made traditions and covered with the garment of Christ's righteousness and filled with the new wine that is Jesus. You know, I stand here and preach every week to mostly the same faces. Week after week, I see you all. I realize that many of you have been walking with the Lord for longer than I've been alive. And it may seem like the call to abandon self and trust in Jesus is just a little overly redundant. But church, I tremble at the reality of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, by the way, Lord, Lord is a sign of piety. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. See, friends, it is entirely possible to make a profession of faith, to sit in church for 40 or 50 years, to be a Bible-believing conservative, to live a good, clean life, at least by human standards, to be active in the church, to do many things in the name of Christ. It's, it's possible to do all of that, to have all of that, and steer here these still hear these awful words from the lips of Jesus on the final day. That should make all of us tremble and squirm because it will be revealed that somehow, somewhere, in the deepest recesses of our hearts, we were trusting in our own righteousness to be saved. And then when we're looking at everyone else wondering, well, why don't they live like us? Week after week, for as long as I am here as your pastor, I will stand behind this pulpit and call you, me, and every single one of us to lay down our efforts at righteousness and trust in Christ. I will point you and I do this to my, I have to do it to myself every day, every single day, to be, to, to be pointed to the glorious cross of Jesus where all of our sins can be forgiven. And you can walk out of here this morning and every Sunday morning with new life in Christ. So friend, it doesn't matter if you made a profession of faith when you were five years old or 95 years old, or maybe never at all. Professions mean little. Turn away from self. Turn away from misguided notions of piety and trust in Christ today. Let's pray.